This fall, we've, uh, we've been studying through some of Jesus' parables, um, and this is a, a really unique way, not necessarily unique for the Jewish culture of which Jesus was a part of to teach, but uh, maybe unique for how we are used to learning, um, that, that Jesus doesn't, doesn't just give us answers, but, but draws us into a story, uh, gives these kind of enigmatic images or scenarios and, and, and helps us um, imagine our way into them. It helps us even begin to imagine the kingdom. Uh, and, and so when I was mapping out uh, with Jeff and, and some others uh, some of these parables a few months ago, uh, I realized that there's kind of, kind of some parables that, that are doing similar things. There's, there's parables that we really like. You know, we really like the prodigal son. Uh, we, we know that one. Uh, we really like the, the you know, builder, you know, typically the ones that, uh, that you write kids songs about or that you knew from Sunday school. But then there's some that we really don't like. And so we're going to do one of those today. Uh, so uh, this, this parable is uh, sometimes known as the parable of the wicked tenants in the vineyard. So um, it, it, it shows up in, in all three um, what, what's called synoptic, or the Gospels that are kind of viewed together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, but we're going to read out of, out of Luke 20, uh, verses 9 through 19. Jesus told the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, rented it to tenant farmers, and went on a trip for a long time. When it was time, he sent a servant to collect from the tenants his share of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenant sent him away, beaten and empty-handed. The man sent another servant, but they beat him, treated him disgracefully, and sent him away empty-handed as well. He sent a third servant. They wounded this servant and threw him out. The owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I'll send my son, whom I love dearly. Perhaps they will respect him. But when they saw him, they turned to each other and said, This is his heir. Let's kill him so the inheritance will be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never happen. Staring at them, Jesus said, Then what is the meaning of this text of Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be crushed, and the stone will crush the person it falls on. The legal experts and chief priests wanted to arrest him right there because they knew he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't think many of our Bibles really help us read parables very well. They try to. They're, they, they're well-meaning. They give us these headings, you know, these little prompts and nudges. For instance, this one in Luke's Gospel, um, like in the NRSV and in some other things, it has this bold-faced title right before verse 9. It says, The Parable of the Wicked Tenants, right? But right off the bat, when you read that, and, and as someone who like, organizes worship, it's really frustrating on Good Friday when you give someone scripture readings and they read all of those headings as if they're scripture because they're really not. You know, That's an aside for another one. But when you pay too close of attention to these, you, you've already succumbed to the temptation to focus on one place, 
to read in one way, you've already started to, to interpret in one direction. We focus on the tenants and their presumed guilt rather than the vineyard owner, the servants, or, or even the son. Perhaps we'd be better off taking the kind of you know, conservative approach that our hymnals take. If you look in a hymnal, how they list songs is by the first line. Then, so it's amazing grace, how sweet the sound, you know. Maybe if we did that, this, this parable would be called the parable of a certain man who planted a vineyard. Didn't that, didn't that have a nice ring to it? But I think this would actually help us out a little bit. For one, it'd focus us on the vineyard owner who most certainly represents God in this allegorical tale. The one who planted a vineyard, i.e. creation, and rented it out to tenants, i.e. humanity. This is pretty easy, right? Parables are easy. The very one who's entrusted everything to us, seen and unseen, so we might not only steward it well with care and compassion of the creator in whose image we've been made, but also that we might join in that creation's praise. We might learn from mountains and trees how to praise the Lord's majesty simply by being mountains and trees. That we might discover God's provision and care like the, the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. That we might cry out lest the rocks beat us to it. That we might learn about seasons of abundance and harvest and fallow seasons of crop cover from the fruitful fields that we've been given to keep, and that we might learn from and contribute to that, the teeming of creation, be fruitful and multiply. A certain man planted a vineyard and rented it to tenant farmers. Then Jesus went on, or actually then that man, that certain man went on a trip for a long time, is what the parable says. Isn't that how it feels? Isn't that, doesn't it feel like that certain man has been gone for a long time? Like we're, we're coming up in a little while to Advent and there's that Christmas carol. I heard the bells on Christmas Day and it says, God is not dead nor doth he sleep. It feels like that's wrong sometimes. So it feels like God is sleeping. That the Lord has left the building and that in his absence everything is run amok. Just look around. And this is, this is maybe why... Um, Pope Francis struck so, so many of us as, as kind of prophetic or right on, is that he, he seemed to be able to, to look around and see all these crises that are happening and put a name to them. And talk about environmental damage and talk about the instability of the family, talk about poverty, talk about hurting homeless immigrants. Where is God in all this? Has that owner of the vineyard left for a long time? In Jesus' time, there might have been a similar zeitgeist, similar expectation. His two audience being not unlike Francis on his U.S. tour, the religious and religious inclined and the hopeful hurting. Those are how I would describe Jesus' audiences. The hopeful hurting is that little guy, the 99%. As Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, he encountered many who seemed that they were trying to vet him for the office of Messiah, the one in whom they could put their hope, the one in whom God might 
enter into the human struggle and prove mighty to save. The one who might embody and usher in the kingdom. The one who might rightfully represent that vineyard owner who'd left behind his vineyard, who left it behind to to tenants like us who treat it more like a frat house than a farm, right? So Jesus tells this story, and he tells it with all this hanging in the background, and like hanging in the background like fluorescent wallpaper, right? Like it's there, and we're very keenly aware that it's there. Like a thick fog in the air that every breath is kind of tinged with it. And he, he begins this story, and his crowd likely is, is saying, Amen, preach, come on now. Or maybe his crowd was like white and grad school educated, and they just kind of went, hmm. <laughs> Say more. Unpack that. I think I like that. You're on to something. The first servant was sent away and beat up empty-handed. The second was beaten, treated disgracefully, and sent away as well. Surely the third time would be a charm, right? I'm sure all the servants were lined up around the master saying, hey, send me, this will be great, this will work. But if the master was really smart, he probably, would have, he probably should have sent a bounty hunter instead, but that's just my opinion. In this parable, the parable of the certain man who planted a vineyard, we begin to understand these servants as the prophets who've gone before. That God has sent over and over to God's people to call them back to faithfulness. To to call them to turn from their destructive, idolatrous ways. The ways that they were ruining the vineyard. Destroying God's creation. Unwinding his intent for their life together. And for his renewal of all things. They were being unfaithful to their role, to their end of the promise, to be a blessed people for the sake of the blessing of the world. This is the same vineyard described by one of these prophets, Isaiah, in Isaiah 5 in a song. And Camille, you, I think you have this up there from Isaiah 5. He says, let me sing for, the, for my loved one a love song for his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it, cleared away the stones, planted it with excellent vines, built a tower inside it, and dug out a wine vat. That vineyard was for something. He expected to grow good grapes, but it grew rotten grapes. So now you who live in Jerusalem, you people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I haven't already done for it? When I expected it to grow good grapes, why did it grow rotten grapes? is all in the background as Jesus is teaching. Now let me tell you what I'm doing to my vineyard. I'm removing its head so it'll be destroyed. I'm breaking down its walls so it'll be trampled. I will turn it into a ruin. It won't be pruned or hoed and thorns and thistles will grow up. I command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord of heavenly forces is the house of Israel and the people of Judah are the plantings in which God has delighted. God expects justice but there was bloodshed, righteousness, but there was a cry of distress. This is all in the background as Jesus is talking about that certain man who planted a vineyard. This is the same Isaiah who but a chapter later this, from the, this song says, Here I am, Lord, send me. 
but whose mission is to go to speak to a people who will listen carefully but not understand, who will look carefully and not comprehend, whose minds will be dull and ears deaf and eyes blind, who won't experience healing even if he's standing right in front of them. That's the prophet's task. That's the servant going to the tenants. Do you see the irony here that's happening in this? Jesus is about to spring a trap on them that he set for them. That God might send his dearly beloved son, whom they'll surely respect. They'll pay attention to the heir, but rather, they not only abused him, but they killed him. They killed him in an attempt to take what was his. This isn't, this is again, all these stories replay. All these shadows come into fullness and focus. This is the story of Joseph and his brothers in Egypt playing out in Jesus' story in Jesus' life. It's here that Jesus' storytelling takes a prophetic question-asking turn. He puts the question to them. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? The obvious answer is surely seek justice, seek vengeance, kick them out. But they answered all aghast. Don't ever let this happen. They, they could start to kind of see who this was aimed at. Surely they knew that they were the ones with an inheritance to lose. You see, Jewish identity was built precisely around the promises of God being fulfilled in a covenant. They'd be God's people and would be gifted with law and land. When they were given the law via Moses, the commandments even started with the memory of their deliverance. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. From the land of slavery to the land of promise. Their whole idea of themselves might begin to unravel if they start to imagine themselves without this inheritance. May this never happen. As Jesus stood in front of them, they could sense that thick irony in the air. Jesus was actually teaching against them in thinly coated language. That is not nice, Jesus. Finally, Jesus, as Jesus is wont to do, reveals a bit of scripture that they all would have known and pointed it exactly to himself. That line from Psalm 118 that we said together earlier, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This might just be the last straw for Jesus. Not only is Jesus making a claim that this important ancient text is centered on him, and maybe they felt like Bruce Springsteen when Ronald Reagan took Born in the USA, that important ancient text, and pointed it at himself, right? But brick by brick, he's building a new temple. This brick is no ordinary brick. It's that place where heaven and earth coincided, where God would meet his people and they would meet their God. The very temple that Jesus would in other places make reference to his own body, right? I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days God will raise it. One theologian puts it this way. Not only does that stone, that cornerstone, speak of the Messiah and that eschatological temple, it also refers to the victory of the Messiah over the kingdoms that have oppressed 
the people of Yahweh. All the other kingdoms have to lay down when God is bringing about his kingdom. God was launching a plan to save his people and bring about justice. But all of it sounded like a threat to Jesus' audience. And I think we often act like Israel, like God's choosing is up for our grabs, when it was always God's choosing. And in Christ, God always chose his son. If we reject Jesus, we reject God's choice. We grab onto an inheritance that's not ours. Instead of living into the inheritance that God has made possible for us by grace, by Jesus' person, by his becoming the temple, that meeting place where heaven and earth intersect. If we don't get this, we trip over the first brick that God is using to build the kingdom. And all this to say, Jesus was telling them that they're not going to get it. They're just not going to get it. They're going to get it wrong. Though he was speaking in code, he couldn't be more clear. They were obsessed with the coming Messiah, but he knew they wouldn't know how to receive him. They were obsessed with God's promises, but he knew they wouldn't know how to handle it when these promises started to widen and their story might move to its graceful and and ultimate logical conclusion. They were obsessed with the temple, with the possibility of meeting God, but he knew they wouldn't know what to do when that tabernacle of God started to show up in the bad part of town with the wrong kind of people who would never and could never get into the temple courts in the first place. What are we obsessed with? What is is Jesus just going to throw into our spoke about? Is it security? Is it prosperity? Is it the way things are? Is it the way things were? Is it the way they should be in our minds? Is it ourself? Are we obsessed with ourselves? Is it our kids? Is it our homes? Is it the, the brands that we're making for ourselves? Is it our own little kingdoms that we're obsessed with? See, Jesus knew he was a scandal to their sensibilities. So if his teaching scandalized them, that meant that they were actually listening. (laughs) meant that they were actually starting to see, they were starting to hear, they were starting to taste, they were starting to imagine the kingdom. How often do you let Jesus' words and actions in Scripture bother you? Like, really bug you? Like, you lose sleep about them? I know my devotional life is so, like, anesthetized that if I don't like it or if I don't understand it or if it bugs me, I just move on, you know? If it starts to mess up this tidy belief system that I'm building, I, I, I just screen it out. I hit the mute button, I I, I move to something else, something more pleasant, the Psalms maybe. But Jesus won't let that happen. You see, if we're paying attention, if we're truly following Jesus, like 
following in his footsteps, if we're living our lives in this faithful, risky kingdom way, we'll be led to places and be sitting across the table from people that we never thought we'd encounter. And everything we thought we knew or expected won't really matter. All the things that we learned in school or Sunday school, we're going to be off script. (laughs) And that is really scary. Because that means we'll have to abide in God's presence. Trust him to give us words. I wonder if sometimes that is the reason when Jesus sent out his followers, he sent them out with nothing, like with the shoes on their feet, you know? Um, because it would be a challenge to them. That, a challenge for them to, to trust that they were being equipped with not just everything they needed, but more than they needed. I wonder if, if our preparedness doesn't have a whole lot of room in the kingdom because it's going to subvert our expectations and what we're prepared for so much. We're going to be packed for the wrong trip. Uh, I wonder if, if it makes us overcautious or if it makes us dug in that sometimes we start to anticipate the wrong things. I'm reminded of a song lyric from this country singer, Um, Jason Isbell, he has this new record and it's been killing me. This one lyric uh, the last couple weeks, it's almost like a little parable, like one of those images. It's in a song called 24 Frames, which is like one second of 35 millimeter film. And he says, everything can change in 24 frames. And the line is, you thought that God was an architect, but now you know he's something like a pipe bomb ready to blow everything you've built that was all for show and goes up in flames. Like, God is an architect. We want God to build for us, but he's so often like a pipe bomb who's going to destroy our little sandcastles that we think are a kingdom. Or a theologian uh, might put it this way, far less rhythmic, but no less artful. Karl Barth says that God has left us without root or soil or country, so he himself can become our root, soil, and country. He's uprooted us and dug us in somewhere else. He's grafted us into this new thing. In the Jesus we encounter in the pages of Scripture, I think in the Jesus that we encounter in the neighborhood, we meet a friend, but we don't meet a yes man. We meet a friend, but not a buddy who's looking to prop up who we are or who we have been or what we think we know but a companion who will challenge us. Have you ever had a friend like that who who will call you on your stuff? (laughs) That's Jesus. Uh, He's a friend who will take us on a a wild ride if we let him. He's a friend that will trip us up, a friend that will, will level our little bristle block castles that we're building that we think are a kingdom, and he'll build a solid kingdom in spite of us with himself as the cornerstone that key piece that's holding everything together. This drives us bonkers, drives me nuts. We want to polarize. We want a new law or a new plan or a new rule or a new scapegoat. Just give me a principle to live by. Tell me what's right or wrong, who's right and what to read, or who's wrong and who to stay away from or who to demonize. Just tell me what political party to join, and I'll join it, right? 
whether we should be trying to hold on to a past that never happened or press forward towards something that we don't even know where we're going. Sometimes I think all the issues that we get so bent out of shape around, real issues that divide us, sometimes I think they can't really be resolved by us. But maybe that they're, they're given to us as gifts, as series of instances which we can choose to follow Jesus in that tension. We can choose to hear his voice and offer forgiveness to bear peace, to be kind to one another, even when we disagree with each other, that we, that we run towards each other instead of away from each other, that we can begin to trod this third way of Jesus, and it's not a mushy middle. It's not like the, the mean average of everything, but it's this laser-focused life, this Jesus life. It's built on assurance that we don't need to fear because the owner of the vineyard has not left us. In fact, even though we've repeatedly ignored him or we've done violence to those who are brave enough to tell us that we're wrong or that we need to repent, that we need to, to turn towards him instead of keep running away from him, he sent his son to reclaim what's his. That's the good news. Even though we've killed his son, and I say we because we have that same strain of sin coursing through our veins that Jesus' contemporaries did, we would have been part of that crowd. Don't get yourself wrong. Don't, don't be wrong about that. We have that same thing in us that brings fear and violence and wants nothing to do with peace. We'd rather silence God incarnate than have him tell us to turn around to change our ways. We killed his son. But not even that was the last word. We killed his son, but not even that was the last word because Jesus was raised by God's spirit, the same spirit that will raise us and that will include us, that will graft us in, that will pull us out by the roots and put us on God's ground that will include us in God's eternal life that will put us in relationship again. And Jesus is simply saying, I'm here. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. Let me in. Let me come reside with you. Let me take your little story and put it into my big story, which is the climax and it's the conclusion of the story that God's been working all along. Redeeming a people to reclaim creation. Freeing people for the sake of freedom. Let me take... He says, let me take all those heavy things and make them light. Let me bind up all your brokenness. Let me light all your darkness. He says, let me use you to be the next stone in the kingdom that I'm building. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for these tough stories. We thank you that Jesus is a Jesus that is so for us that he'll speak against us sometimes. Lord, let us trust in him. Let us let him in when he's knocking. 
Let us not dismiss him. Let us not do harm to him. Let us not kill him again because he's been raised for us and for our sake. He's put away that old life of sin. He's, he's beaten death. Let us live this eternal life, this kingdom life. Father, we thank you that not even death could defeat Jesus. We thank you that not even death could could count us out of his inheritance, Lord, but would actually include us in that inheritance where we are counted your sons and your daughters through Christ by your Spirit. Lord, we thank you for that. That is the gospel. That is grace. And Lord, let us, in everything we do, operate out of that grace and that good news and not out of fear. We thank you and we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.